It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 42 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, November the 17th. First, I'll be talking to David Chin, the President and Chief Marketing Officer of Velexa, the Australian-born customer experience and data platform which helps companies better understand their customer data to serve their customers better. And I'll be talking to ComSec Chief Economist Craig James about market conditions next week. But first, let's talk to David Chi. David, tell us about the work of Lexa. Oh, we're a customer data platform. We work with retailers, both in Australia and in the US, who really focus on brands that are kind of in that middle to large category, so kind of 10 million to 500 million of turnover. But we help them use their customer data to better understand and engage their customers. So these brands, they really suffer today from a a host of different technology tools that they use to manage different relationships with their customers across e-commerce, retail, email, the website, customer service. And each of those tools captures a, a separate view of your customer. And if that data sits siloed across those tools a modern retail business has no hope of understanding their customer and then you know serving them in a meaningful way to build loyalty and trust and this this operates here and in the u.s yes so we were founded in australia in 2010 uh, by aaron wallace and uh, we made the decision to move out to the u.s in 2017 so packed up the family and moved over to the u.s and we've been establishing our business here for the last four years well, that raises a very interesting question, David. I mean, how do you scale a business from Australia in a place in a market like the US? And how valuable is Australian intellectual property? Oh, look, I think Australian intellectual property is uh, is a hot commodity today for international expansion. Now, I've got a science background, so I actually think of it from more of a, like a biological standpoint where, you know, each geography is like a little nature in, nature environment and it has its own forces and dynamics. And it just so happens that those forces and dynamics shape the companies that grow within. And so if you think of that like natural selection, it just so happens that the forces in Australia create companies that I believe scale very well internationally. And there's a, a few reasons why. 
the Aussie market's pretty small. So if you set up a business in Australia, you have to do what you're going to say. You have to deliver great outcomes for your customers because if you don't, word gets out pretty quickly and you've ruined the market. Whereas here in the US, the market's so big that you can start and you can do the wrong thing by a couple of customers and no one's going to know. But it's not doesn't really work that way in Australia. So you know, a lot of Aussie companies really focused on outcomes and value and relationship and trust. And that always serves you well when you scale a company. So what are the key learnings you get from scaling up a business of this sort? Look, you know, I've done it a couple of times now. I had the benefit of doing it in Asia. I took a business from Australia and set it up in Hong Kong, China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. Which business so, was that? Can I ask? It was a retail analytics business that Experian acquired I set that division up in Australia and then took it out through Asia over a five-year period. And so, look, it, it, I would say that the environment that you take the company to is, I must I think I was a little bit sure of myself when coming out to the US that setting up a company in Asia with different language complexity and emerging markets was, was hard and that going to the US would be easy because everyone speaks English and it's a big market, but uh, it wasn't really the case. <laughs> the US has been... Uh, a really interesting challenge and we've learned a lot. I think to answer your question, the, the common lessons from doing it, I mean, the first one is you just immerse yourself in the market. As a, as a founder stepping into a new market, exporting you know, Australian IP into a new geography, don't put a time limit on it, commit to the market. So don't have a return date and trip planned for you to be home because when you do that, I think it loses some commitment to what you're doing if you've got a an exit date. Make sure your family life is set up and you're happy because of one of the things that ruin most people's international kind of setups and expansions is the home life's not great and you end up losing the opportunity to establish the company because your family wants to move home. Hire local is the other one to make sure you hire a local team because there's no substitute for local market knowledge. And so you get that through people. Have really clear focus. So know who your customer is. Don't try and spread yourself too thin because it's one of the things that Australian companies export well because Australia's a, because it's a small market, technology businesses tend to be a bit broader. They tackle a bigger problem. And so, because they tackle a bigger problem, they can charge more for their products. The total addressable market in Australia is bigger. But when you come to a market like the US, a lot of US software businesses start doing something very narrow for a specific industry and a specific customer. And you can create a big company doing that. So when, when we moved to the US from Australia, we made a very deliberate decision to focus on a specific industry vertical, just one of our solutions. And that proved to be um, very successful for us because we built some notoriety for what we do within that target market. So what's the future of retail and e-commerce? In Australia or in the US? Well, both. Look, uh, you're right. E-commerce has gone crazy. Here in the US, our cust US customers acquired 78% more customers than they did in the prior year. So the store closures that happened created a flood of customers into the e-commerce channel. So that's particularly exciting. You know, we jumped forward probably 10 years of development in a couple of months at the start of COVID, which is the kind of famous McKinsey statistic. And so like, where do we go from here? I think the first call out is brands need to be careful that they accurately forecast. Because one of the things I can see is people expecting for that type of growth to continue 
Whereas as stores open up, I don't expect that volume of growth to persist, but it won't, you know, the tide won't go all the way out. It'll stay up a little. And so with that, we've seen just some amazing changes around how brands go to market. We're seeing text messaging has grown incredibly here in the US. I feel like in, in a year, our customers, very few of them had an SMS strategy. Now virtually all of them have an SMS strategy. So they're trying to find new channels to communicate and to engage customers. And then the other one that's while we've got this change of channel preference and people flooding to e-commerce, we've also got the big privacy thing happen with Chrome and Apple. So we're seeing some of the traditional channels that marketers use to acquire customers and to retain customers and that performance changing. So whilst there's some downwind trends, there's also some headwinds as well. So it's a pretty interesting time to be a a modern retail brand. Right, of course, of course. I mean, what, what would be your advice to businesses, uh, Australian businesses in times of turmoil, and particularly when things are changing so quickly? The first thing is focus on customer. So, so many brands organize their companies by the channels that they serve their customers, whereas customers don't think about channels, they just think about brands. So, you know, the companies that are winning today are the ones that organize themselves around the customer. The next is, you know, and this is a little self-serving for, for Lexa, but it's really about having a good understanding of who your customers are, the resources to be able to measure changes in customer behavior and adapt to them quickly. A lot of the changes that we've seen have happened so quickly and a lot of brands have been caught out. There's massive supply chain issues. People are like, oh, the biggest problem that our customers have today is a lack of inventory to service the available demand. So the ones that are doing a really good job are understanding their inventory position, are efficiently communicating the products that they have an inventory position in and are selling well through what they have. And then are serving their customers through the inevitable disappointments if you can't serve them well with the product. So, I mean, direct marketing could be applied though, but through different channels. Is that be right? Yeah, that's a, that's a big focus. So Facebook's built an incredible business helping connecting brands with new consumers and their existing consumers. And there's some challenges there. And so what we're seeing is a real focus on marketing on your own channels, like email and SMS. So brands are really leaning into their existing customer base and are focusing on how to grow customer lifetime value from the existing customers they have through better direct marketing via email and SMS. Would that be the future for uh, direct marketing? You know what? It's interesting that, yes, it's a very strong pillar, but there's no one channel or focus. Direct mail here in the US is having a real resurgence. So there's amazing vendors that do programmatic direct mail. You can... Like you send a, an email, you can then inform a mail house to send a postcard to a customer. So we've seen some brands achieve incredible results. One of our brands, a brand called Wonderside, that does a direct-to-consumer play for organic home pesticides for dog and flea treatments. They're achieving a 600% return on investment from direct mail. So they're quite incredible when done in a targeted and personalized way. So I don't believe it's one channel. You've got to use all of them. But the key comes down to knowing your customers, doesn't it? Correct. And so and that puts the focus, the business focus has to be on actually knowing what their market is and getting close to their customers, which becomes quite an issue if you're trying to scale up business in a market like the US with all the different states, etc. It is like 50 different countries here. That's, you know, as, a, as an insight from an Australian, 
we are quite culturally homogenous across Australia, but you just have to drive across the country, which we did early on, to learn just how different each state is. And so, yes, you're right. You need to, that's a consideration. Well, David, that's fascinating stuff. And thank you very much for your time. Leon, pleasure. And now let's talk to Comsec Chief Economist, Craig James. Well, Craig, what's your forecast for the, for the week starting November the 20th? Well, it's going to be a fairly difficult period, I think, for, for investors because we, we're not going to get you know, sort of too much you know, information in terms of economic data. We'll have to listen to uh, the Reserve Bank officials uh, speaking, which isn't such a bad thing. But what we've got is the, the governor of the, the Reserve Bank, Michelle Bullock, uh, she'll be speaking you know, sort of on Tuesday at the ASIC annual forum, uh, participating in a, in a panel discussion. And then later in the week, the governor will be speaking at the Australian Bureau of Business Economists uh, annual dinner. That's on Wednesday. So certainly whenever the, the Reserve Bank governor speaks, we listen, listen very, very carefully for any changes in the nuances of, of policy settings, of the policy stances and the like. So the Reserve Bank governor's central focus yes, in the coming week. We've got a number of other things for the, from the Reserve Bank. The, the meeting minutes will be released on Tuesday from the, the last policy meeting. The cash rate target was lifted by 25 basis points at that meeting. So We'll get a little bit more information as to what they were discussing at that meeting and yes, what led to uh, that decision. Uh, we've also got another Reserve Bank official, the acting head of domestic markets, Carl Schwartz, speaks uh, or gives a speech uh, also on, on Tuesday. So if we didn't have the, the Reserve Bank officials around the place sprouting forth their, their knowledge in terms of the economy and the monetary policy, well, It'd be a fairly uh, boring week, really, in, in terms of economic data. We've only got the state accounts. Uh, now, this is looking very much backwards for the, the 12 months to, to uh, June. Uh, so the state accounts will be coming out on Tuesday. We've got the leading index from Westpac coming out on Wednesday. Then on Thursday, we've got the, the flash purchasing managers uh, indexes which provide timely readings on the economy. So in terms of the data, that's probably yes, the highlight, but we have to wait till to Thursday to, to be able to get that. In terms of looking overseas, again, it's more second-tier type data yes, rather than top-shelf data. We've got the leading index coming out on Monday in the United States existing home sales on, on Tuesday, durable good orders and consumer confidence are coming out on Wednesday. And then you've got uh, Thanksgiving Day happening on Thursday. So certainly, yes, yeah, so that's going to take out a chunk of the, the week. And then uh, just as we've got the purchasing managers indexes on Friday, the US will have their flash readings of purchasing managers. And of course, the, their, their data is very, very important. If the, the purchasing manager has a key role at any business, they, they should know what's going on in terms of whether the order's up or down, yes, the price pressures and, and the like. So they provide timely readings on the economy. What do you expect from the PMI from Australia, uh, given that the economy is weakening? Yeah, I think we're going to see slightly soft results coming out from uh, both the services and the, the manufacturing sector. And that's to be expected. What we want to see or what the, the Reserve Bank wants to see is a rebalancing between supply and demand. And the expectation at the moment is that uh, demand is probably still a little bit too strong in relation to supply, that's putting some upward pressure on inflation. And that's why the, the Reserve Bank lifted interest rates by another quarter of 1% to, to keep the economy on a, a even keel uh, and get that correction between supply and, and demand. And that's really the central focus at the moment. But uh, what we are probably going to see from the United States is a little bit more resilience in terms of their economy. The US uh, Federal Reserve Chair, uh, Jerome Powell, 
uh, said in terms of the US economy that it's been remarkable how well it's done despite the fact that interest rates have been going up over the, the past year or so. At the same time, uh, the figures here would suggest the economy is definitely weaker or weakening. Yeah, no, I think we're seeing that in terms of the, the leading indicators, in terms of things like job advertisements, you know, so they're, they're down. Uh, the purchasing managers indexes soften. We look at you know, so the business turnover figures that come out from the Bureau of Statistics, and the, the last reading was uh, it was a 1.1 percent increase for for the uh, the month, but over the quarter it was 0.1 percent, uh, and this has been very much a leading indicator of the, the broader economy, gross domestic uh, product or economic growth. And uh, for the last couple of quarters, we've got readings of 0.1 or 0.2 for the the business turnover f- figures, and. Uh, so it suggests a very flat economy. So what has been quite remarkable has been, yes, the resilience of uh, the, the job market. But if that starts to soften, of course, then we'll start to see further softening in terms of retail spending and the economy more generally. And hopefully, yes, sort of that will lead to uh, inflationary pressures coming down. We've had a favourable yes, development over the, the last couple of weeks yes, where we've got the oil prices uh, coming down. The expectation is consumption is going to be fairly weak. Non-OPEC supply is probably going to pick up over the next year or so. And if we see that oil price softening, that will be extremely positive in terms of the inflationary outlook. So what's your forecast for inflation? I mean, do you see it coming down by much? I, I think over the next 12 months, it probably will surprise uh, I would think that uh, we, we have seen a significant tightening of policy. We haven't seen that really show up yet. But I do think, yes, over the next 12, 12 months that, that we will. Uh, and I think, yes, by this time next year, I think, yes, we will be either in the process of cutting rates or about to, to cut rates, uh, given the fact that um, the economy has softened and uh, inflation would be on track, we believe, at, at that point in time. Heading back towards the target band of two to three percent, but stranger things have happened. It is the strength of the job market, which is really the, the deciding factor in terms of interest rates in many parts of the world: the United States, United Kingdom, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. Back to the Reserve Bank, the lifting of interest rates by twenty-five basis points suggests that they're not confident that their two to three percent target ban will come in at the end of 2025, might come in at 2026. So they lifted rates to ensure that it remains on target, remains on on track. Do you see another rate rise in December? We, we don't expect another interest rate um, increase. Um, we think that rates have uh, gone up to as, as high as they need to be to be able to get inflation yes, under control. But this is the the big question for central banks at the moment, we've had a number of central banks indicating that they're close to the top in terms of interest rates. But they're also saying at the the same time that um, should inflation continue to, to be yes, well above the target ban and its progress towards that those targets yes, remain slow, that they won't hesitate to, to lift interest rates again. And I think that's right and proper. I think what with the, the big focus or the important thing for, for monetary policy at the moment is inflationary expectations. If people get too relaxed, too comfortable and say, the interest rates have peaked, we haven't got to worry. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. About that anymore, we'll go back to, to spending again. Um, then uh, I think the the the, cent, the, cent, uh, the central banks around the world were going to have significant difficulty in getting inflation under control. So every opportunity I think we're going to hear from central bank officials that yeah, progress is good, but you know sort of we're not there yet, and we're going to do everything that it takes to get there. And if inflation is still too high, then we'll have to increase rates again. Now they don't want to push economies into recession. But this is the the hard part, I think, for for central banks. You know, so now just knowing yes, you know, so whether they they are indeed at the top of the cycle or not. The hard part is the stickiness of inflation. Yes, um, I suppose that is the case. But uh, the the signs that we have is that the economy has softened. That we are starting to see some um, price pressures ease. If we look at the Melbourne Institute uh, inflation gauge in the latest month, it was down by one tenth of one percent. So that's quite encouraging. And I think if you do get you know, sort of a pivotal factors like the oil price coming down, if the oil price was stable or slightly lower, that would take away some of the inflationary pulse that we're seeing in, in the uh, thing at present. And that will help the job of central banks in getting inflationary expectations uh, under control and getting inflation under control. One of the encouraging things here is, uh, if I can say, consumer confidence and retail figures uh, being softer. And that would suggest that that might be putting pressure on inflation to come down further. Yeah, no, I think that that is the case. It's an interesting thing when you look at business confidence. Businesses are feeling okay about things at the moment, a little bit wary, but yes, feeling okay. And that's because basically they've been able to pass through higher costs to, to consumers. But it's getting increasingly difficult to, to do that because consumers are saying enough is enough. I mean, we're already facing yes, the tough times. Uh, we're not going to pay yes, the higher prices. And so... Uh, if consumers remain uh, less confident or, or pessimistic, uh, certainly that will be positive in terms of in keeping inflationary pressures under control. It means that the ordinary uh, person out there uh, is just going to shop a little bit more carefully. You know, sort of, they're going to look at their budget, see what things needs to be cut out. Uh, they're going to go for, for cheaper brands rather than the more expensive brands. And I think you know, that sort of behaviour is something that uh, central banks want to see more and more of. And spending less. Well, in spending less, I mean, I suppose the complication here in Australia is that we've had uh, the, the need for, for more workers. Uh, skills mismatch means we've got to bring them from overseas. So we've had this big increase in terms of um, population. If you look at retail spending per capita, uh, it's very, very weak. But what's increasing the, the retail spending figures somewhat is not just prices, but the fact that there's more people you know, so here in Australia to consume the goods. And those are the things that we have to think about you know, fairly carefully when we're thinking about uh, interest rate settings and the like. 
the the power that population is is providing okay okay well craig thank you very much for your time again not a problem at all so what's happening in the news well the united states is one step closer to losing its last perfect credit rating after Moosey's Investor Service changed the outlook of a nation's debt to negative on Friday after markets close. While the move does not automatically mean it will downgrade America's creditworthiness, it increases the chances. Even the prospect of a US downgrade could hurt Americans' investment portfolios, make it even more expensive for them to borrow money, and make it more costly for the government to pay off its debts. These effects would likely be even more painful if Moosey's does eventually downgrade the US debt. The nation's diminished fiscal strength undone by extreme partisanship in Washington, was a key driver of the action, according to a statement from Moody's. In the context of higher interest rates, without effective fiscal policy measures to reduce government spending or increase revenues, Moody's expects the US fiscal debts will remain very large, significantly weakening debt affordability, the statement said. And Australia could suffer supply chain disruptions lasting for weeks, as DP World One of the country's largest terminal port operators struggles to bring its systems back online after a serious cyber attack forced a shutdown of its operations. With an estimated 30,000 shipping containers stranded, a supply shock could push up inflation and force the Reserve Bank to raise interest rates for the 14th time, experts have warned, putting pressure on DP World to quickly fix the cyber breach. NSB founder and chief executive Shane Bell said recent breaches had shown regaining control could take a long time. Tens of thousands of shipping containers stuffed with consumer goods like electronics, clothing and food remained trapped at ports around the country on Sunday after Stevedore DP World Australia was struck by the cyber attack on Friday. The Middle East-known Stevedore, which operates terminals in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Perth and handles about 40% of the goods coming in and out of Australia, was forced to shut down technology systems at 10am on Friday. The shutdown prevented some 30,000 containers of goods from moving in or out of its terminals, including refrigerated containers that can hold anything from lobsters and muggy beef to blood plasma. Ships could still offload and pick up containers. The technology systems that allowed trucks to share data with the stevedore were turned off, meaning trucks could not get into DP World's terminals to collect or drop off containers. Containers piled up on docks over the weekend used up about 90% of the stevedore's storage space. The Danish boss of DP World's Oceania business, Nicholas Noes, who has only been running the stevedore for three months after a long career with Danish shipping firm Maersk and its subsidiary Svitser, said it was difficult to put a financial value on the 30,000 containers. DP World was testing alternatives to its usual technical systems on Sunday afternoon, but Mr Nose warned they would not operate at the same scale. He warned there could be a snowball effect from the delays in getting containers to customers, partially due to the difficulty of reassigning import and export slots when systems are restored. An Optus, Telstra and other major telco borders will be required to sign off on a new or updated cyber risk management program every year or face hundreds of thousands of dollars in penalties. The changes are part of new laws to be introduced by Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill to classify telecommunications as critical infrastructure for the first time, requiring company boards to comply with strict rules that already cover hospitals, utilities, ports and energy generation assets. Following the high-profile Optus hack last year and the Nationwide Network outreach, Ms O'Neill said it was necessary to include telcos under the security of the Critical Infrastructure Act. Ms O'Neill previously criticised the coalition for not including telcos in the critical infrastructure laws back in 2018, accusing her predecessor Paul Fletcher of striking a sweetheart deal with car companies. The coalition was satisfied telcos were adequately covered by other legislation that included necessary sector standards for cybersecurity. 
But Ms O'Neill described the existing laws as bloody useless during the Optus breach back in October 2022, in which an anonymous hacker stole names, birth dates, phone numbers, addresses, passport, healthcare and driver's licence details of 9.8 million Australians. The crackdown on telcos precedes the release of the government's cyber security strategy this month and comes amid the major cyber attack on stevedore giant DP World, which manages container operations at ports in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Fremantle. And Australian Securities Investments Commission Chairman Joe Longo has warned businesses must close alarming gaps in their cybersecurity defences, while experts said it would be very costly for telcos to comply with new cyber laws that foisted on them after Optus's network outage. Mr Longo was speaking as the regulator released an annual snapshot of corporate Australia's cyber preparedness on Monday, which found almost half were not managing third-party or supply chain risks commonly used by hackers to breach companies. The government is expected to announce a long-awaited national cyber security strategy next week. Details have begun to emerge about new requirements for companies to warn the government about unfolding cyber incidents and ransom demands, in addition to adding telecommunication providers to toughest Security of Critical Infrastructure, SOCI, laws. Optus's outage, rapidly followed by the damaging cyber attack on DP World's ports, exposed Australia's soft digital underbelly, which the government is racing to strengthen. In its report, ASIC rates Australian companies on their cyber maturity on a scale of 1 to 4, where 4 is ideal. It gave a weighted average across corporate Australia of just 1.66, meaning that most companies are reacting to problems as they arise, rather than properly mitigating them. Small companies were markedly worse than larger ones. It found 44% of organisations failed to manage the cyber risks posed by dealing with external third parties such as vendors, suppliers, partners, contractors or service providers, which often have access to the internal systems. It said 58% of companies have limited or no ability to secure confidential information, and a third of companies have no cyber incident response plan. And Optus has finally revealed what caused its entire network to collapse, leaving more than 10 million Australians cut off from essential telecommunication services as it faces a $400 million compensation bill. A routine software upgrade triggered a mass shutdown of routers across its network, effectively unplugging phone and internet services across the country. Some people couldn't dial triple zero for emergency services on fixed lines, while Melbourne's train network was paralysed and phone lines at some hospitals were blocked, among broader economic disruptions. Analysts at Maybank, Malaysia's biggest bank by market value in assets, said Optus could be forced to pay up to $400 million under an agreement with Australia's communications regulator. This would equate to about 10% of its half-year revenue. And Optus customers have defected to Telstra following last week's 14-hour outage. However, Telstra Chief Executive Vicky Brady doesn't expect the network disruption will cause a significant shift in market share. Speaking at the Telco's annual investor day, Ms Brady said the response of customers was similar to after last year's Optus hack, when Telstra experienced a short period of new customers signing up. And the annual Rental Affordability Index from SGS Economics and Peak Body National Shelter found renters in each capital city were now worse off than before the COVID-19 pandemic in 2019. The index, which compares rents to household incomes, shows previously affordable suburbs in cities from Melbourne to Brisbane would now strain the average household budget. National Shelter Chief Executive Emma Greenhart said more households in the cities and regions were under rental stress and many places were the most unaffordable they'd ever been. Separate data from the Reserve Bank, which this month lifted interest rates to a 12-year high of 4.35%, noted advertised rents had increased by 30% since before the pandemic, well above the rental inflation. Together with historically low vacancy rates and little sign 
that tight rental market conditions will ease in the near term. This is expected to keep rent inflation elevated for some time, the RBA said in Friday's statement on monetary policy. Rental inflation neared 8% in the year to September and was expected to increase further, the RBA said. A household is considered to be in housing stress once housing costs are greater than 30% of its total income. The Rental Affordability Index found Sydney had become the least affordable capital city alongside Hobart in the 12 months to June 30, as median rents rose by $100 to $650 a week, costing 29% of the average renter's household income. No coastal Sydney suburbs had acceptable rental affordability found and inner-city locales were either unaffordable or extremely unaffordable. The average household needed to travel at least 15 kilometres from the CBD to suburbs such as Campsie, Lakemba, Rosehill or Parramatta to find acceptable rents. SG Economics and Planning Principal Ellen Witt said this was a deep economic problem. In Melbourne, rental affordability had dropped to 2018 levels, the report found. While an average rental property costs 24% of an average income, which is considered affordable, Witt said affordable pockets would be disappearing. An entire corridor stretching from Footscray in the inner west, north to Meadow Heights, was considered affordable to the average rental household just last year, she said. As of June 2023, those options that cost less than 15% of a household's gross income had all but vanished. An Australian super has rejected an 11th hour overture from the Brookfield and EIG consortium to join their takeover of energy giant Origin as a suitor scramble to firm up shareholder support for their near $20 billion bid in the face of hardening opposition from the country's largest super fund. The consortium sent the super fund, which manages almost $300 billion for 3.2 million members, a letter on Monday outlining proposed terms that would give Australian super a seat at the transaction table, a last-ditch advance. Superfund swiftly rejected. Brookfield and EIG have locked horns with Australian Super, the power retailer and generator's largest shareholder, as they attempt to muster Origin Energy's 122,000 stockholders to accept their best and final offer of $9.53 a share, ahead of a vote on November 23rd by all shareholders that will decide the takeover. Brookfield's head of renewable power and transition Australia, Luke Edwards, said there was room for a Superfund inside the consortium. But by not joining, Australian Super was standing in the way of the retail investors receiving a compelling premium for their shares. The Superfund said an unsolicited letter containing an offer for it to engage with the consortium about acquiring an interest in Origin should the takeover on the terms proposing Origin's scheme booklet be successful. Australian Super has rejected an 11th hour and unsolicited letter received from the Brookfield and EIG consortium today and has reaffirmed that it will be voting against the Origin Energy takeover, the fund said. Australian Super said its position previously made public is unchanged on the upcoming vote as it believes the offer remains substantially below its estimate of Origin's long-term value. The fund won't reveal its own valuation, but market speculation puts it around $12 a share. The suitors need 75% of votes cast at the meeting to back their bids for it to succeed, and a strong turnout from nearly all shareholders is crucial. Typically, about 60% of shareholders vote or appoint proxies at scheme meetings, and under that scenario, Australian Super's 15% will knock out the takeover as it would represent 25% of the shares cast. And ANZ reported a record full-year cash profit of $7.4 billion, 14% higher than a year earlier, boosted by its diversification into institutional banking for large companies amid competitive pressure in Australian housing. And Commonwealth Bank of Australia's profit was flat in the first quarter due to lower net interest margins from continued competitive pressure for deposits. Unaudited cash profit was $2.5 billion in the three months to September 30, according to a state 
Spectre on Tuesday, flat on the second half of 2023 quarterly average. And News Corp Chief Executive Robert Thompson has said the market is undervaluing the media company and the potential of its portfolio of digital assets despite losing subscribers in Australia in the first quarter of fiscal 2024. The media company, controlled by Rupert Murdoch, on Friday posted a 1% jump in revenue to US $2.5 billion, that's $3.92 billion Aussie, for the three months ended September 30, 2023. Earnings of the period rose 4%, to US $364 million, that's $571 million Aussie. News Corp's overall performance was buoyed by its Dow Jones business, with profits for the unit up 10% to $195 million. However, revenues for News Corp's Australia fell by 7% due to foreign currency fluctuations and lower advertising revenues across print, across both print and digital. Digital subscribers at News Corp Australia's news mastheads, which include the Australian Daily Telegraph, the Herald Sun and others, rose slightly to 937,000 across a year. However, compared to the most recent quarter, fell by 6,000. It was also a challenging quarter for majority-owned pay TV company Foxtel, with earnings before interest taxes, depreciation and amortisation down 13% to $152 million compared to the year prior. While total subscribers grew year-on-year, marginally, 38,000 customers left its streaming platform Binge in the quarter. Despite the subscriber loss, Thompson said the overall News Corp business was thriving, adding that print revenues now account for less than 5% of the company's total revenue, compared to 39% in 2014. And billionaire philanthropist Andrew Forrest is an evil spirit whose iron ore miner Fortescue Metals Group has torn apart a Pilbara indigenous community, according to witness statements freshly released by the federal court. The written submissions of 10 Yinjibani elders and members who testified in the group's ongoing legal challenge against Fortescue earlier this year were officially made public by the federal court on Friday, shedding new law on the miners' controversial early land access negotiations and the lasting cultural and social fallout from its activities. The statements also describe in detail some of the violence that has occurred between members of the Injimbani Aboriginal Corporation and their counterparts from the Wulimura Injimbani Aboriginal Corporation. WYAC was formed as a splinter group after YAC knocked back offers from Fortescue when the miner was trying to expand its Solomon iron ore operation. While the Fortescue back WYAC went on to strike deals with a miner. YAC in 2019 was granted exclusive native title over much of the Solomon area. The federal court case is considering what sort of compensation should be paid to YAC, with some estimated the claim could be worth up to $1 billion. In one of the recently witnessed statements, Injimbandi elder Stanley Worry described Dr Forrest as a junior or evil spirit. When I first met Andrew Forrest, I trusted him because he told us that he grew up with Aboriginal people at Mindaroo Station. He knew about our suffering from being taken off our land. I thought he was a good bloke, Mr Worry said. Looking back now, I can see that there was no respect and he was going to stop at nothing to build the mine without taking the Injibadi people's permission, culture or feelings into account. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to David Fairfield, the founder and CEO of Metigi, about his company's AI-powered digital marketing solution for SMEs. And I'll be talking to Callum Pickering from Indeed about the latest jobs figures. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. If you like Talking Business, please leave us a review with Apple Podcasts. Thank you in advance. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. 
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Welcome back to Two Judgy Girls. I'm Mary from the Bay. And I'm Courtney from LA. TJG is the podcast where we spill all the tea on your favorite reality TV shows, celebrity gossip, and everything in between. We're here to bring you our unfiltered opinions, hilarious commentary, and plenty of laughs along the way. We're two SDSU Delta Gamma sisters with a microphone and a whole lot of opinions. Each week, we dive headfirst into the wild world of reality television, from Bravo to all the trash TV you could want. We break down the drama, dissect the latest scandals, and share our thoughts on everything from the jaw-dropping moments to the embarrassing antics. But that's not all. We're not here to just gossip. We're here to connect with you, the jurors, and share our love of all things pop culture. Whether we're dishing on the latest celebrity breakups, discussing our favorite guilty pleasure movies, or sharing embarrassing stories from our own lives, we promise to keep it real, keep it fun, and keep you coming back for more. Come judge with us. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com. 